Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. In today's show, we're going to continue Article 11 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the negative statements, those teachings that we reject and condemn, because they are against Scripture with regard to the teaching on God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, and election. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is Pastor Brady Finnern. He is the pastor of Messiah Lutheran in Sartell, Minnesota. Pastor Finnern, welcome to Concord Matters. It's a joy to be here. Thank you. Well, certainly an honor to have you on with us. And as we jump into the negative statements today, we heard back in the status of the controversy that election is a comforting article. And we've really highlighted that pretty well on the previous two episodes covering this article, I think, pretty well. And I think that you would agree that today as we navigate through these negative statements, that this is a key understanding to keep in mind is that it really is a comforting article and just kind of setting this up, kind of give us the very brief summary of that. Just go ahead and expand a little bit on that idea that this is a comforting article, even as we jump into the negative statements. Yeah. Well, first of all, when you look at election and predestination, it just brings up a lot of questions. But one of the main goals of this article and really the formula and all of the confessions is that comfort is to be applied for the spiritual care needs of somebody in the parish, someone that is in the church for the believers. And it's also very applicable for us as pastors is, okay, it can bring comfort. Now, how do we make sure that we're bringing that comfort as we care for souls within the life of a church and the Christian life? And so I'm speaking of this, it's really focused in on the care of someone's conscience. And when I talk about conscience, I'm speaking not like Jimmy Cricket, and, you know, let your conscience be your guide. But the conscience is like a mirror. I heard Dr. John Kleinig talk about it this way, which I really like, is that the conscience is like a mirror. When you are looking at it, you're trying to determine your relationship with somebody or something. And for us, obviously, it's a relationship with God. And often the mirror is dirty and it's unclean or you're seeing yourself in the wrong light. And when we look at things from the confessions, that it really, in essence, clears that mirror so you're able to see clearly that you're in the right relationship with God, and he uses language all over the place. And I would argue that even though it doesn't say these words explicitly here, is that it assumes it where they say, on account of Christ or for Christ's sake. And what it's showing us is kind of a different view of the diamond where it shows that you have a good relationship with God, and that's what these are really focused on. And conscience is everywhere in the confessions. I mean, Dr. Kleinig talked about this about five years ago when I was at a conference, and he just talked about if you were to go through all the confessions and highlight the word conscience, you'd be amazed how often it's used. 
and specifically how it's connected with forgiveness of sin. So I was like, I'm going to do this. So COVID started and I started doing that. Now I'm just starting the formula Concord actually. And I've highlighted conscience over 200 times since we started this. And so it's really interesting to see that the whole confessions are pointing back. What is your relationship to God? Now I'm going to get here. I'm going to get to the right place. When it talks about comfort, it is a comfort for us to know that we have a good relationship with Christ because it tells us in the beginning of the affirmative statements, since election is a comforting article. And in this part, it says if they read this and you cannot comfort yourself, then we're doing it the wrong way. So they take what Scripture says and make sure that we're focused on what's revealed, not what's hidden. We're often our focus when we talk about predestination is asking questions that we just simply don't have an answer for it. And so we started inserting our own logic. We started inserting our own ideas. We started inserting worldview of the world. And then the whole time what we lose is Jesus and the cross. And if I could give one example from a parish life is that we went through Romans 9 through 11, and this was by my first through second year of ministry with the Blessed Saints on Wednesday morning. And we're going through Romans 9 through 11, which, by the way, I mean, you got to be more ready than I was when you do that. And we're going through it. We're plowing through it, and it kept coming up. People are asking, how do I know that I'm saved? What about that person? What about these people? What are you saying? God is a double predestining God. And I'm like, no, well, then prove it. What's going on? And went through the whole gamut. And these wonderful people were just wonderfully patient. And I remember one gal named Norma, and she said, you know, all this talk about how do I know that person saved or that person saved, what really I need to remember is that Jesus died for me. And what a comfort that is. <laughs> and I remember sitting there thinking, okay, well, maybe Norma should teach a class from now on because she's clearly doing better than me. And that's really at the beginning and end of this doctrine of predestination, we have to end the understanding of how do I know that I'm saved? Jesus has died for me. The cross and him crucified is the center of everything we do. So that has to be the filter that we have through this whole thing is where do I find salvation? You look always back to the cross. I'm in complete agreement with you on this. I think that especially as we go through the confessions, you and I were kind of talking before we started the show here today that it's probably a self-selecting audience that even knows that the Lutheran confessions exist, the Book of Concord exists, and then even more so that listen to a show like this or that read them on a regular basis. <laughs> but I really think, you know, and I believe this not just because I have this show, in part I do this show for this very reason, that the more that we know our Lutheran confession of the faith, the greater the comfort, the conscience that we have. I mean, we really don't have to wrestle with, am I saved when we know our theology? And I'm not talking about, you know, PhD level pastor, you know, doctor in the seminary kind of know our theology, although that would certainly be awesome. <laughs> but when we know our theology, we really know what scripture teaches really quite well. And it is just, it is utterly practical for pastoral care, as you highlight really well, just in teaching a Bible class that we know our theology on this matter. And then on the lay side as well, it really is just a beautiful, beautiful comfort that I know the comfort that I have in Christ, because this is what is revealed to me. And our Lutheran confessions just confess it so well. And I agree with you. I agree with Dr. Kleinig, of course. That is just a wonderful way to highlight that. And I think that this then jumps us in as well, pretty well to the first paragraph here, which is a little different. I'll have you talk about that here in a second. 
But as we begin these negative statements, paragraph 16, and again, we use on this show the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this paragraph 16 is different. It begins with what we did not see in the affirmative statements, as we talked about with Pastor Boo last week, just a little bit. But we're going to see a different format here in this Article 11, where it begins with, we believe this. Usually we see that we believe teaching confess show up in the affirmative statements, and we didn't. But here we see it start the negative statements. And I think it is, again, just a beautiful, beautiful statement of why it is important that we have clear confession on this and that we reject and condemn these errors in teaching just because, again, it's for the comfort of our conscience. It's for the assurance of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and then let you expand upon that just a little bit more. So this is paragraph 16, beginning the negative statements, false teachings about this article, which is Article 11, God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, and election. We believe and hold this. When anyone teaches the doctrine about God's gracious election to eternal life in such a way that troubled Christians cannot comfort themselves with this teaching, but are led to despondency or despair, or when the unrepentant are strengthened in their wild living, then the doctrine of election is not treated wickedly and erroneously according to God's word and will. Instead, this doctrine is being taught according to reason and by the encouragement of cursed Satan. It is as the apostle testifies in Romans 15 verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Therefore, we reject the following errors. And we'll jump into those errors. So thus far, the epitome. But Pastor Finnern, go ahead and talk just a little bit. Why is it that they begin, or why is it you think probably, <laughs> they begin these negative statements I mean, we can't crawl into the mind of God, let alone the mind of the confessors, although, you know, we have what they have written. So, but based on what they've written, why do you think it is important to begin this article in this way, which is really quite different than the articles that they have in getting into the negative statements? Yeah, you know, like you said, we don't, we don't fully know. But I do think it's important to have negative statements. Now, this kind of, <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit when I start reading it, a little bit of the Debbie Downer from Saturday Night Live, you know, just everything is wah, 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 you know. So you feel like in our culture, we want to be happy all the time. Don't compare yourself in a negative way to somebody else. Like, well, at least I'm not like Bill or something. So it's a little bit hard for us to muddle through this. But it also, once again, and this is where I come and I, when I read through the confessions, it's all about spiritual care of, of yourself. And I would say spiritual care of those in your church and other Christian people is that you have this, we reject the following, and we believe this, and then they go into, but we don't believe that. And it becomes part of a spiritual care thing that you deal with almost in everyday life. For me, I coach track at the high school, the public high school. Well, not this year, but every other year I have. And one of my beloved athletes, she, well, there was a suicide and it was a real sad situation and everything. And they had a funeral and it was actually at a Mormon church. And I was really struggling. Do I go to that? Do I not go to that? And I ended up going. And there was a number of kids from my congregation that were there. And you go through it and you're just, oh, what, what's happening? And they said this and said that. And I'll never forget after the service, she came up, one of the gals came up to me from my church and said, Pastor, they said this. We don't believe that, do we? And it was one of those times where you see that negative statement bringing a positive proclamation, a clarity to what we believe. 
They said it's by works. I mean, literally, that's what they said is that we're going to hope that she did enough works. And but we, do we believe that? And I was like, no, it's all on account of Christ and who he is and so forth. And when it comes to election, it's important for us to be able to say, well, we don't believe that, which even makes it more clear about the wonderful affirmative statements that happened before this. And so that's where I think it's important for us to be able to have those negative statements. And it is a very much so applicable to everything we do and everything we are as a church. Absolutely. And I, I thank you for highlighting that, especially as, again, right before the show, we were talking a little bit about this, how I thought 11 articles in, we've talked a little bit about the negative statements in their place and how we always want to highlight and I'm going to highlight that again for us right now, is that these statements that I'm about to read, we do not believe these. We do not agree with this. So if you kind of come in in the middle or something, you're like, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure we believe that. You're right. We don't. All right. So I've said it there uh, and I'll continue to remind us. But I don't know that we've really covered on this show and we're 11 articles in. I don't know that we've really covered the benefit of why we have negative statements along with the affirmative statements. And a lot of times they go together. Obviously, we've made that connection a lot of times on this show as we've gone through the previous 10 articles is that you see the connection, how it's stated in the positive sense. We do believe this. And then in the negative sense that we reject and condemn this. So they are connected. But at the same time, why it's important to highlight these things that we reject and condemn, once again, it provides that teaching opportunity because you do see these errors out there present around in other things. And which is maybe another point to make here that we're going to get back to a little bit later on this episode is that the present time of the writing of the Formula of Concord there was no open controversy, although they could see it coming down the road. And we've talked about that on the previous couple of episodes, especially in the reform teaching on this article of doctrine. But certainly we do see it very much, especially even still today in American Christianity and has certainly been an issue for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate in its history, which we'll get back to. So it is important to point out, okay, you see this teaching out there and we do not agree with that. And, and we can talk about why, which gets us back to the affirmative statements, but you can kind of come at it from both ways. So I thank you for highlighting that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So we'll go ahead then and pick up, we're going to pick up the first two negative statements. Again, we do not agree with these teachings. This is paragraph 17 and 18 of article 11, negative statement one and negative statement two. God is unwilling that all people repent and believe the gospel. All right. I, I just, I have to pause there. Again, we do not agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot emphasize that enough. All right. Negative statement two. When God calls us to himself, he is not eager that all people should come to him. All right. Again, it, I mean, <laughs> I'll let you, you go ahead here, Pastor Fenner, but uh, this is just very clear. We have to reject and condemn these, but here we really see two similar misunderstandings of election and God's grace, and it's grace that is limited in some way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It certainly makes us wonder then why some Christians would believe these errors. I mean, I, I had to stop and pause and reassert we don't agree with it. It, it just blows my mind that there are Christians that would agree with this. But then is scripture not clear about this matter, that grace is extended to all people? And if, as I'm pretty sure you agree with me, that scripture does speak pretty clearly and plainly on this, why would such an error be out there? Why would this need to be included here? Well, first of all, it just eliminates that even up from the table. 
you know, I personally have never encountered somebody that would quite have this view. So that's why, like you said, it's a little bit difficult to understand. If it was out there, maybe they weren't really dealing with it, but it's something that you want to eliminate right away so that, once again, your clarity of, okay, we're on the same page here, right? Oh, yeah, okay. So Scripture is very clear. I mean, first of all, um, the first one, it says, God is unwilling to have all people repent. Well, Jesus says it, you know, repent and believe in the gospel, Mark 1. It also is very clear that he wants people to be saved, that he grieves when people aren't saved. So Romans 10 says this is what he wants. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes into that he's not eager. I mean, it's just, that's even more unfathomable. I mean, how could we say that God's not eager for people to be saved? For Timothy too, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And also, like I said prior, is that he does grieve when people aren't being saved. Obviously, you see Jesus grieve when his friend Lazarus dies. We also see in Matthew 23 that he grieves Jerusalem, that there they are, the place that was confessing the truth of the Messiah to come, the Old Testament, there he is. How often would I have gathered your children as hen gathered her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. I mean, this gives us a very clear picture of a very, I mean, this is about as clear as you possibly can get, that God wants all people to be saved. He wants all people to repent, you know, just like in Jonah, where the people repent from a very simple sermon. This is what God wants for each one of us, and it's good for us to remember, first of all, God's will in all of this, but also for our own sake, that our life is a life of repentance. And it, I think it boils down to simply this. If we ever have questions about God and what he wants for us and what he's willing to do for us, always go back to John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that brings us back to eliminating one and two. Like you said, once again, we don't believe this. This is not who we are. I think we all can agree on this. And to always back it up with Scripture, going back to simple stuff, which is John 3.16. But then I might also say, I agree with your thinking there that this, as I even said myself, this is just so out there that, you know, it would seem like no one actually holds this. But I think it does come back to something that we see very clearly show up in Reformed theology, mm. Reformed teaching on this. And while they might not come out and blatantly state it as pointedly as these two negative statements, their theology, their doctrine on double predestination and so forth, basically getting at that question, why some and not others, right. does boil down to this sort of thinking. I mean, well, uh, if I'm not saved because God doesn't choose me, then... It's to his glory, you know, everything in Reformed theology just goes to the sovereignty of God. But essentially that says, well, then God is just unwilling that all people be able to be saved by the gospel because he's chosen some not to be. I, I don't know. Do you want to expand a little bit on that a little bit? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. It's not so much that they would say it, but that's where the unintended consequences of your theology goes. And see, this is where, as Lutherans, we just—part of it is because I'm not asking that question, that, you know, we're so clear in the gospel, we're so clear in that this person is saved, that it's hard to understand. But there was a, a good friend of mine who was Presbyterian, and, you know, he had a wonderful experience with this Presbyterian church. And he—one day he was there, he worked as a musician, and someone came to his office, and this young man was very worried about his soul. Like he was just, I don't know if I'm part of the elect. And I remember listening to this and going, I just don't get it. Like who asked that question? But 
if you're continually preaching these things, this is what is going to come out, and it's a soul care issue. And so he's like, I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know if I'm saved. And this, he was a music minister, and they were they were coming to him instead of the pastors, that they knew he talked differently. And he's now a Missouri Synod pastor, so it's kind of a cool thing. But he was sitting there, and the guy just, I don't know if I'm saved. And what happened was he opened his Bible and read John 3.16, and the young man's like, yeah, so? And he goes, well, it says you're in the, you're in the world, right? And he goes, yeah. Well, what do you mean, though? He goes, no, 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 just are you in the world or not? And he's like, what are you trying to get to? He said, I'm just asking you, are you in the world? And he goes, yes. Well, if you're in the world, then guess what? Jesus has died for you. End of story. And that's exactly right. And for that young man, he had never really heard that before. Never heard it put in that way, which is why you don't hear these uh, negative statements um, very often. But yet it's like this big, deep, dark hole that if it never gets said that you're in the world, Jesus has died for you. If it's never a for you, then you're naturally going to wonder, is Jesus actually for me? Which is why we preach and teach and confess that all the time as Lutherans, to make sure people know that this is for you. Absolutely. And then really kind of expanding upon that as well, it goes in really quite nicely into negative statement three, which we'll get with about five minutes before our break here. And so we can continue on the other side if we need to. But I think that this picks up on, again, that teaching mostly from the reform of double predestination and really expands upon that again. And, and again, we need our clear scriptural teaching, teaching by this is the negative example, what we don't agree with, but gives us an opportunity to clearly confess what scripture does, which I love your example there. And, and praise God that we have someone who, even in the midst of a, a heterodox confession that is not faithful to scripture in what is very clear there, that proclamation went out, and so we give thanks for that. But then jumping into negative statement three here, God is unwilling that everyone should be saved, but some, without regard to their sins from God's mere counsel, purpose, and will, are chosen for condemnation so that they cannot be saved. Once again, don't agree with that. That is very clearly the teaching of double predestination, chosen for condemnation, but to get us into this again with just a few minutes, five minutes or so before the break, this statement really sounds quite harsh the way the confessors put it, I think. And it really is harsh. Mm -hmm. But this idea of double predestination is just, it's very common, especially in American Christianity. And I think that it is a harsh teaching itself. I, I think it is an impediment to the clear proclamation of the gospel. It really is disturbing to me when I encounter it myself. But once again, can you go ahead and give us a scriptural basis for the comfort of the consciences that reject this error, and then go ahead and give us some thoughts on why do you think that this might be appealing, this doctrine that we reject and condemn might be appealing, that it really is so common out there? Right. Yeah, it's very complex because it can be so mistreated and misunderstood when you read something like in Ephesians 1, where it talks about how you were chosen before the foundation of the world. And you kind of, people stop there and they're like, oh, okay, all right, I was chosen. But what about Billy over there? And Billy doesn't appear to believe. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But then it continues to verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And the key words are there that, that point us in love, he predestined you. This goes to Jeremiah 1.5. And, you know, if you really want to, if you're going to read something about being chosen and 
and it not being an easy ride to read Jeremiah. I mean, I've been reading that recently, and it's just a wild ride. But it tells him there, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before I consecrated you. And so this is a wonderful reality of God choosing you. But then we're naturally led to ask the next question because we always want to have everything fit together nice and neat. So if it's this, then obviously this over here, the negative side, that must be true. So if God elects people and then there's people who aren't in the faith, then there must be the counter to this, which is where he chooses some to be condemned. And that might work with how we usually use rhetoric or argumentation as humans, but that's not how Scripture speaks. Scripture speaks explicitly that you've been chosen, as First Peter 2 talks about, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Here it talks about being chosen. So the understanding that we are chosen and to allow that question of why some and not others to leave that in God's hands. In, I was reading something about getting into the form of Concord. This is an older book. And one of the things it says in there is why some to whom God's grace comes responds in faith. And the understanding of it is that we believe this and the other things we have to leave to God. Because when you read these, that when we try to figure out what God's heart would be, like, oh, this is what God wants. And we don't have scriptural passages to be able to prove that. That is something where we just go down, like I said, a deep, dark hole of not understanding exactly the clarity that God gives here when he says, you are saved on account of Christ, which is once again where the confessions really just open that up, make you realize where you are and that you are chosen. And scripture clearly points us to that wonderful reality over and over and over again. And I do think that that is a beautiful thing to highlight. Oftentimes what gets brought in here then is that Romans 9 passage, which you talked about in going through in a Bible study and so forth, where we see God saying that he hardens Pharaoh's heart and things like that. But it's important that we understand how Scripture interprets Scripture. That's, that's our principle for understanding Scripture. And when you have an overwhelming amount of evidence, as you've laid out really well for us, that God has chosen you by his grace in the gospel— that helps us understand what goes on there in Romans 9. And we'll leave that to Sharper Iron or one of the other <laughs> KFO shows to do a Bible study on that particular passage a little more directly. But I do think does tie into this as well. And as I said in setting th- this up, this really highlights you know something that we see very commonly even still today in American Christianity. But I think negative statement number four is even more, but we're going to go ahead and take a break here. And so we'll pick up on the other side of the break that God elects us based on something that's in us. So please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Hi, this is Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, host of Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're starting a new series on Sharper Iron that will take us through the book of Judges. It's titled Rebellion and Rescue. The period of Israel's history recorded in the book of Judges is far from what anyone would label a golden age. Two summarizing statements from the book put it very succinctly. At the close of the book, we're told that the period of the Judges was a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But while the people were doing what was right in their own eyes, what did God's eyes see? The first half of the book will put it like this multiple times. 
the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But this idolatry, this faithlessness from Israel, it does not change the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord shows himself faithful. He is faithful to the consequences he had promised he would bring upon his people when they rebel against him in idolatry. And he is faithful to rescue his people in their repentance. We will see that cycle repeat over and over during the book of Judges. And there will be texts where Israel's evil, sin, and idolatry and the devastating consequences are so rampant that you might find yourself scratching your head and exclaiming, I can't believe that's in the Bible. But these texts are recorded for us in the Word of God so that he can show us clearly just how disastrous our sin and idolatry really are and so that he can show us his faithfulness to deliver us sinners through the Savior to whom the book of Judges points all along, Jesus Christ. Join us on Sharper Iron the next six weeks to see from the book of Judges the faithfulness of God to rescue his rebellious people in his Son, Christ Jesus. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Brady Finnern, and we are continuing to go through the negative statements on Article 11, God's eternal foreknowledge and election. And Pastor Finnern, just before the break, we were covering how we see this double predestination thinking show up. You know, basically it boils down to the question, why some, not others? How do we know if we're saved? Those sorts of questions. But then, as much as we see that show up even still in American Christianity today, I think this negative statement, number four, it's very important that we have clear confession on why we reject and condemn this teaching. Because, again, we see this show up quite a lot in American Christianity today. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it and then throw it on over to you. So, again, we're picking up with Article 11, God's Eternal Foreknowledge and Election, from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, and this is negative statement number four, paragraph 20. Something in us causes God's election, not just God's mercy and Christ's most holy merit, because of which God has elected us to everlasting life. All right, so again, we reject and condemn this, but I really do think that this may be the most popular wrong doctrine about election that is out there in American Christianity. It seems to make so much sense to our earthly minds that we can choose whether or not to believe or that we, you know, that because I'm a, basically a good person or, or because I do good things or I was a part of this social cause or I served in the military or whatever it may be, noble things, though, some of those things may be. This is a very common thinking that is out there that something in us causes God to choose us. And so... Why is it that we reject this on the basis of Scripture? And then what does it mean for us in our living that we have a right, clear confession on this, not accepting this article? Yeah, yeah, this one you hear all the time. And sometimes you're even afraid to ask the question of how do you know you're saved because you might get this answer. And I have a good friend who does a lot of ministry in, in college campuses, and he asks that question, how do you know you're saved? And he's not trying to be mean. He's just hanging out with people, and he's, he's very good at it. And across the board, when you ever watch his videos or you talk to him, he will say, do you think you go to heaven? 
And 99% of people will say, I hope so, because I, I try to be a good person. I try to do this. And it's totally something that by nature, we think this way. But by nature, we also know that I don't know if I've done enough, right? And so, you know, Romans 3.23 talks about, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, showing us that there's nothing in you that will save you. Romans 5 talks about, and while we were yet sinners, Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, there it really gets down to this understanding of you bring nothing to the table. This part of the total depravity of humankind is obviously something that we would line up with the Calvinists. The problem is when they try to fit the other part into it, that for us would say, uh, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, although we fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by his grace as a gift. I mean, this goes to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 2, that it's all a gift that we've been saved through faith. All of it is a gift that he showers upon us, not something where we put our hands up to heaven halfway and God grabs a hold of us. It's basically he grabs a hold of us purely by grace from the head and lifts us up to him and says, you're mine. But it's so it lines up so much with everything else we do is that, you know, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, which is why they're addressing this. It makes sense in our minds. I do this, you do this. If some people are saved, then obviously some people are condemned before the beginning of time. We try to use logic where the beauty of Lutheran theology, the beauty of, well, Scripture, and the beauty of looking at this in a Christ-centered way is you say you're saved in Christ, on account of Christ, on the cross, for you, and then you let people have a clear conscience and their understanding that it has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with Jesus. That's why number four, like you said, is one that is very troubling for the soul of any person and it's very troubling scripturally as well. Yeah, I'm just going to briefly highlight, this, this is a common soapbox I bring up on the show all the time. You mentioned that uh, we try to use logic. Well, see, here's the thing, is that we don't use actual logic, right, which is <laughs> logos, the divine logic of God revealed to us in his word. If that guides our thinking, then we're good. Then we're good. <laughs> but what we use is we use our fallen human reason informing our logic that there have to be these counterbalances but you know i think that what you said there is certainly right that basically we just try to invent this thinking that well we try to invent comfort for ourselves which again is all a part of the fall mm -hmm. and we need to trust god and his goodness who reveals to us this is how we are chosen it is by god's grace and so we just can't emphasize that reformation teaching of lutheran theology enough when it comes to this article because actually again you know just as you were talking there i had through my mind something i brought up quite a lot on this show where if you hold up calvinist thinking reform thinking common american christianity thinking today against things that we saw in the roman catholic church at the time of the reformation they're almost mere images of one another you know mm -hmm. this this mm -hmm. you know saved by our works instead of purely by god's grace and then really doesn't leave us a whole lot of hope and comfort. And this might be a side tangent uh, a little bit here, but, you know, as we see the things, the events that have taken place in our world, especially here in our country the last few weeks where, you know, with the riots and protests and turning down statues, and it's like no one can have any faults and things like that. What I think in, in terms of this, that's the real danger in all of this too, is that if we're looking inside of us, I mean, no matter how much good some of these people did to have statues 
and monuments built in honor of them or buildings named after them and so forth. Eventually, somewhere down the line, everybody just looks at the bad in your character, which we all have. We all have a sinful nature. And, well, that wasn't good enough. Well, if it's not good enough for history, how is it going to be good enough for your eternal salvation? Mm. And so we all know that none of us is good enough. And so don't stake your eternal salvation on it if you can't even stake having a monument. Stand. I don't know. Maybe that's a little too crazy and a little out there, but it, it's just, it just seems to me, you know, a great irony that we, that it is so common in American thinking out there that there's something in us that is worthy of God choosing us, but not even in our present secular circumstances is enough worthy. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that or would you rather just move on? Well, no, I, I think I think it's maybe not the statue thing because you're right. There's a reality of it's it's crazy. I think of it in this way. It's kind of like going back to your high school reunion, and uh, you go back, and you're hoping that everybody overlooks or looks past the stupid things you did in high school, and you're like, hey, I've changed. And then we have a tendency to look at each other and go, oh, I remember when he or she did that. Remember that? Oh yeah, let me tell you, you know. And so it's ironic that we have that understanding that, wow, you know, boy, we made a lot of mistakes. But then when it comes to God, we start talking almost counter how everyone realizes the world is, which is we all have those flaws. We all are totally depraved, that we all need the grace of God. And so why do we start inserting this new line of thinking when it comes to our salvation, when it's clear we're failing in every single part, you know? So yeah, we, it's very easy for us to look at others and go, how dare you do that? And we're hoping at the same time that no one remembers what we've done, which is why once again, we point ourselves back to Christ. Which is a very Lutheran response. <laughs> and then I think I'll just go ahead and finish out this article here and reading mm-hmm. these, these last three paragraphs together which I think really bookends, especially the negative statements, the presentation. I mean, I'm just in awe of how they presented this article that once again, it brings us back to, this is for the comfort of Christians as, as they even say in here. And so I think it really bookends this well. So this is again, article 11 from the epitome of the formula of Concord paragraphs 21, 22, and 23. These are not negative statements. This is kind of wrapping up why we have to reject and condemn those negative statements, those errors that preceded this. All these are blasphemous and dreadful, erroneous doctrines. By them all, the comfort that Christians have in the Holy Gospel and the use of the Holy Sacraments is taken away from them. Therefore, these doctrines should not be tolerated in God's church. This is the brief and simple explanation of the disputed articles. For a time, they have been debated and taught controversially among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. Therefore, every simple Christian, according to the guidance of God's word and his simple catechism, can see what is right or wrong. For not only the pure doctrine has been stated, but also the erroneous contrary doctrine has been repudiated and rejected. So the offensive divisions that have happened are thoroughly settled and decided. May Almighty God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant the grace of his Holy Spirit so that we may all be one in him and steadfastly remain in this Christian unity, which is well-pleasing to him. Amen. What a beautiful summary for this article. And once again, I think this is the really important aspect to continue to highlight and address as we've gone through this article is that when it comes to this doctrine of election, God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, 
if this doctrine really is to be a comfort for the conscience, then we need to have an answer to that question. How do I know that I am elect? How do I know that I have the promise of salvation for me? And so as we wrap this up, as they wrap this up to give us comfort in Christians, I have one more more contemporary aspect that we want to address. But just in wrapping up this particular article and the clear teaching on it, go ahead and give us our Lutheran answer, our Lutheran confession to how we know that we are elect in Christ. Well, it's simply this, you know, 1 Corinthians 2.2, I vow to know nothing about you but Christ and him crucified. It comes down to that, goes back to John 3.16. I love how he says, the simple Christian. A lot of times we try to make ourselves sound like we're powerhouses in theology and and we will really get deep and get way down in there and, and people will really be wowed by this. And then therefore, on the end of our lives or end of people's lives, they'll be wowed by these great and eternal truths that we've dug out when the whole time it is the truth of simply this, that Christ came to this earth and he died a horrible death and he did so in love for you. And that's for your forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. And if you try to go beyond that, you're just making stuff up because it all goes back, begins and ends in Christ and him crucified. Absolutely. And as we jump more into how we continue to see this play out, one of the things that's highlighted here in paragraph 22, it says, for a time they have been debated and taught controversially among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. And so it might seem a little strange to us. Well, if they're of the Augsburg Confession, well, we highlighted back at the beginning that especially the Reformed, you know, they said they were with us initially, Zwingli said he was, but then it became quite clear that they're not. And so we've talked about that on previous episodes and various articles of this as well. But yet there was this controversy that has been debated for a time among those who say they agree to the teachings of the Augsburg Confession, that they are Lutheran theologians in their teaching. And that wasn't, as we've highlighted, that wasn't particularly going on at the time of this writing of the Formula of Concord of this article, because they even begin this article saying, you know, there is no active controversy about this, or, or what's the words that it used there? Right at the beginning, it says, there's no public disagreement. That's, that's what it says. There's no public disagreement that has arisen among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. And yet they bookend here at the end that this has been debated. And I would say has been debated, and I can't remember if it was Pastor Lang or Pastor Boo, one of the previous guests in covering this article, said basically, but they saw it coming. Mm -hmm. And so we know that there were discussions on. There may have been no active disagreement that they were refuting at the time, but they definitely saw it coming. And I think one of the things that I've highlighted on one of the previous episodes on this is especially what we saw come out of the early Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, very divisive issue as a matter of fact, the dual parish that I serve, one of the congregations actually where I'm sitting doing this show right now today is St. Paul's Wine Hill. It's a big brick church built in the 1880s. The congregation goes back to the 1860s. But just a stone's throw behind us is a congregation that today is a part of the ELCA, but broke out of this congregation, St. Paul's Wine Hill precisely over the debate about predestination. Mm. And I highlighted, I think, on the, the last episode going through the affirmative statements, how one of the great works that comes from my hero, my guy, C.F.W. Walther, is about predestination, the theses that he wrote and dealing with that controversy at that time. 
And it's been available from CPH. Great translation. I believe even President Harrison was a part of working on that translation, among many others, that is available. You can certainly get that from CPH. I commend it if you want to dig deeper into this subject. But you've shared with me before we did this show that you're, you're kind of a history nut and kind of into these sorts of things. And so I guess with just kind of the remaining time here a little bit, go ahead, let's dig into the history a little bit. How did that play out in the 1800s? How did they wrestle with this issue, with this solid teaching that comes to us from the formula of Concord here? Because obviously it has continued and still today has been debated and taught. And maybe where are some things that you've seen this even still play out today? Yeah, you know, it's very deep in our history. And this goes back to a spiritual care issue once again, is the reality of when this topic can come up, there's usually a backstory. And for us in the Missouri Synod, there's a backstory. I remember first time hearing this during seminary, one of my classmates literally left over predestination. He couldn't believe that we were, he said, crypto-Calvinist. And I was like, are we? Am I? I don't know that. <laughs> so uh, it goes back to our history in the 1870s. You had the start of the Synodical Conference in 1872, where you had the Wisconsin Synod and the Missouri Synod, and you had the Ohio Synod, and you had the um, Norwegian Synod were all together, and they were in doctrine and practice together. And things were great. And then in 1878, Walter had a thesis on predestination. He presented this at one of the Synod conferences in 1878 to the specifically the Western District, when we had a Western District in those days. And one of the Norwegian Synod pastors, F.A. Schmidt, these are the two players, wrote back criticizing these theses, and he did it appropriately. He went to him by himself in 1879 in July, and they did not come to an agreement. And then Walter talked about it some more, and, and then sinful stuff kind of started happening. That he gets offended, they get offended, everyone gets offended, and it just exploded to the point where they're having five-day conferences over this stuff in the 1880s. 1881 convention talks about it a ton. And basically it came down to this, is that there was really what we might consider to be a splitting of hairs, but yet it was important for Walter that our salvation was only in the hands of God, only on Christ and Him crucified. And for the Norwegian Synod, they talked about how it all came to fruition in faith, which we wouldn't necessarily disagree with. But the, for Walter, the issue was, are you putting us into the equation at all? Because he's, And we're very clear on this, too. It is all God to us when it comes to salvation. It became a big issue in 1881 when he wrote these 13 theses on the election that you mentioned. is something that is a, is a quality, wonderful statement. And it did split up. Even within 10 years of this synodical conference coming to existence, the Norwegian and the Ohio Synods left very soon after that. And it split congregations. There's one here in Minnesota that um, they're in the middle of nowhere. And these congregations in those days they were so divided by this that they split in the 1880s and still to this day they are separate congregations and so for walter it's something that we always want to put it in god's hands and the comfort in the cross and anything that would go counter that and i would say for us as missouri synod we get very weary and we want to stick to what the confessions and the scriptures have to say and i believe and i don't know if you know this sean i i believe i'd heard this from this guy who left the synod as he said you can't bring up predestination at a synodical conference because of how divisive that it was in those days. I don't know if that's even a talking point, but 
that's something I had heard and tells you the soul care that goes into this that is very trying. I agree with you that we do still see this debated, and I struggle with how I want to phrase this, but it's not like it's the open on the surface kind of debates that anybody would look at and say, oh yeah, there's clearly that issue going on. Mm -hmm. So for an example of what I might term in that sense would be like the difference between the ELCA and the LCMS when it comes to women's ordination and so forth. Mm. That's out there. People know that there's active debate on those sorts of things. But I'm not sure that a lot of people are aware that it is still a divisive issue, a debated issue mm. among theologians, even as those that confess the Augsburg Confession. And again, especially in the history of our own Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod, was very divisive. But I love how they go back to scripture and the confessions, which is something that I thought you did really well in going through these negative statements today. I commend you for that, but is again, foundational for how we address these issues Mm. as faithful Christians that, and, and it's not that the confessions come on the same level. Obviously they are subservient to scripture, but they've stood the test of time. They're faithful, true confessions of what scripture teaches. That's why we subscribe to them as Lutheran pastors and Lutheran congregations. And I just want to highlight this. I pulled down my Walther's Works predestination, the work that I was talking about you can get from CPH. And it says this, and I think that this makes my point of why I bring this in really, really well. Mm. And as you talked about, you know, they had these different conferences and discussions on this. And this comes, it's right here, Chapter 2, Proceedings of the General Pastoral Conference of the Synod of Missouri, Ohio, and other states on the doctrine of election. And it's Chicago, Illinois, September 29th through October 5th, 1880. And it says this just in the second paragraph or so. As the course for our discussions, I would suggest first we establish wherein we agree and wherein we disagree. So see, you already see the the affirmative and negative kind of approach that the formula takes there already, just in those words. Mm -hmm. Then it goes on, and then examine the difference according to Scripture and confession, especially Article 11 of the Formula of Concord. And and I kind of shared with you just my own personal bringing this in. Of course, anyone who listens to the show regularly knows I talk about CFW Walther all the time, and I try to bring him in as much as possible. <laughs> but I think that this highlights really well for us why, once again, as you stated so well, this is of great comfort to the conscience. This is a pastoral care issue. This is a a lay person understanding their theology so that they can have assurance of their salvation issue. That's why our confessions really matter. And especially that when these debates come up, that we go back to, again, what have we said as Lutherans on this matter before? Hmm. And this article, Article 11, was foundational for how CFW Walther and the other faithful LCMS Lutherans dealt with this very divisive issue just go check it out in history. You know, you can check out Concordia Historical Institute has a lot of information on this, a lot of works that have been done that are available on this as well. But it was a very, very divisive issue. Again, I, I even serve a congregation that had a split over this issue. Hmm. And so once again, when we get back to scripture and the confessions, it informs how we handle the issue. And it all leads us back to, again, comfort of the conscience. And that clear confession is just so beautifully comforting when we have that. And so go ahead then, again, I'm kind of working off of things that you've told me off air, mm-hmm. uh, but just just bring it on air. You, you talked about how you've even encountered this a little more recently 
and saw some attention around this, even still today. Oh, absolutely. You know, so I went to a free conference at Martin Luther College here in Minnesota, and it was wonderful. You had a Wisconsin Synod president who spoke. You had the ELS, Evangelical Lutheran Synod president spoke, President Harrison spoke, and then an ELCA pastor spoke as well. And one of the main topics was election. And you could tell that people were very much so very careful to try to go further than the words of the Book of Concord, what it said, because it, they, there were people who would ask questions that were very leading. So is it on account, is it in view of faith, or is it only on account of, of what God's election? I mean, it was very particular in the wording, and it, it got kind of heated at times. And it shows how it still is something that when we talk about it today, it can be very, very divisive, which is why the confessors, they knew, like you said, this was coming. They were so busy as confessors dealing with so many other issues, the Adiaphora controversies, the view of the Lord's Supper, how does the law gospel work? They were so big into that. So by the time they got into the confessions, they probably hadn't spoken about election. But you can tell when they start by saying this is meant for comfort, that this was going to be a big deal. So they strictly stick to what Scripture says and let the rest point us always back to Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I hate to do this because you gave us such great gospel as we wrapped up the article, but then I wanted to get the history and current context where we see this even still today in. But go ahead and with just two minutes left, give us your parting thoughts on this article why is this important? Why is it good that we have clear confession on this? It comes down to this, is that when I uh, was visiting a, a, a gentleman before he died, is he was a guy who had been at church his whole life and had gone, had some ups and downs. And it really came down to where sometimes you want to hear a really deep theological point to know this person believes. So they're quoting the Bible, they're quoting this. And I'll never forget, in between a lot of his jokes, a lot of jokes he can't repeat, <laughs> I remember he said at least 20, 30 times those last two weeks of his life, he said, Pastor, I know this. And he pointed up and he'd say, I know there's a God. And then he would point at his own heart and he would say, and his son has died for me. And that alone just gives you the comfort of knowing that that is what election is about, is that we have a loving God and that God has sent his son to die for me. And for that, you have the full assurance of where he was at at the end of his life, and we have the full assurance of knowing that is our hope as well. Absolutely. Beautifully said, beautifully centered on the gospel that is foundational for our pastoral care at the most sensitive moments of life. Thank you so much, Pastor Finner, for joining us for Concord Matters today, talking us through the Lutheran Confession, the Gospel Proclamation, when it comes to this doctrine of God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, and election from the Formula of Concord, Article 11. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Church.